It amazes me. It inspires me. The more learning I do, the more I am really amazed at the power of this structure to sustain itself and to have a certain amount of authenticity and integrity. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode, a thrilling episode of uh, This Pardes Life. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and it's my privilege today to be learning with Nechama Goldman Barish, who, in addition to teaching rabbinics and halakha at Pardes, you also teach at TVA, a very well-respected gap year program, and Matan, an outstanding uh, uh, institute for uh, women's learning. You're also involved in a lot of organizations out there working on issues of mikvah, sexuality, the role of women in the Jewish sphere. I'll mention uh, Eden and Beit Hillel. Uh, as uh, one of them. You also do some counseling with couples. So you've got a lot going on. You're a very busy, uh, very busy person. So uh, what did you bring for us to learn today? Okay, so I brought one of my favorite texts from a class I teach. Uh, uh, I teach it at Pardes in the summer, and I teach it during the year to my 18-year-old students. It's a, a curriculum I built, and I call the course Permitted But Prohibited. And in it, I really look at different voices in rabbinic text about women, and in my introduction, I, I choose what I feel are the three main voices. The text we're going to learn today is from the first section. It's really, I often warn, the most offensive of the three sections. It's men reflecting on women. I sometimes joke men are from Mars, women are from Venus 2,000 years ago without women really weighing in. And it's where um, the voices in the, the men in the Talmud reflect on the, um, the characteristic of woman, capital W, and the reason I chose this text is because I think there's humor in it, and um, because it talks about the creation of woman, which was last week's Parsha, so I thought it was timely. And I thought it, it would allow us a, a little bit, or allow the listeners, to understand um, a little bit how an Orthodox Jewish feminist learns rabbinic text, and um, how I take texts that seem to be uh, offensive to the modern ear and uh, try to engage with them. Okay, so before we jump in to understand a lot of tensions, right? An orthodox, orthodox and feminism would some say is in tension. A text uh, written about women by men, mm-hmm. right? With no woman's voice presented, but yet still about women. Uh, so let's jump in. A lot going on. Okay. Okay. Uh, should I begin? And you'll correct me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rabbi Levy said, women possess the four following characteristics. Oh, I'm afraid to read this. They are greedy, inquisitive, envious, and indolent. Indolent means lazy, right? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then they start to quote some verses. Maybe you can walk us through what's about to happen. Here. Okay. So, uh, again, I've obviously chosen this source. It's not that there aren't self-critical texts when they self-criticize themselves. It's not that they only criticize women. There, there are a lot of critical or critical examinations of character throughout the Talmud of men and women. Um, and this one, again, is you can imagine Rabbi Levi, who I admire quite a bit as an Amora, trying to figure out how you break down uh, the negative characteristics of women. And he comes up with these four, and what's about to happen is really, it's the text in Devarim Rabbah, in Deuteronomy Rabbah, which is a midrashic uh, commentary on the book of Devarim, 
And they're um, explaining the passage, and Miriam spoke, which is really referring to a story in Bamidbar in which Miriam speaks about the Kushite woman who has some relationship with Moshe. It's a very uh, oblique story. We don't really know what she's talking about. Um, but she's punished. She's punished with leprosy. And um, very almost oddly, in Dvarim Rabbah, there are two verses dedicated to this um, towards the end of Dvarim, reminding us that Miriam had Sarat because she spoke, and it becomes the source for linking Lashon Hara, or speaking badly about another person, to the punishment of leprosy, even though the Torah never directly links the two. So there's a critique here of Miriam because she gets punished, but to say all women, right, that's, that's some beginning. Like it makes me wonder, did Rabbi Levi not like his sister, his mother, his wife, uh, or is he not even thinking about that? Is he just thinking in some sort of theoretical woman or womanhood has these uh, characteristics? Well, Svi, as you pointed out, we don't hear the voices of women. And I would suggest um, I've sat around in many women's groups where the topic of men come up or husbands come up. And people often stereotype or one person says, I can't believe my husband did so-and-so. And this becomes sometimes a reflection on um, the limited capacity of men and women being the superior sex, and so on and so forth. So what I love about learning Talmud is I feel it's uncensored in the sense that we get the voices in the Talmud having many, many, many conversations. Um, we're most familiar, perhaps, with the legal conversations that are had around when should we say Shema or how do we separate milk and meat. But what, what should not be overlooked uh, are the many voices reflecting on parenting and on death and on life and on relationships. And in this case, again, I, I do feel that this is a... Um, male-based conversation reflecting on the character of women uh, in a way that men speaking to men might say, well, all women are gossips or all women are, uh, are vain. Um, that doesn't mean they don't sometimes see gossiping and vanity as a positive characteristic as well. I'm, I'm actually going to teach a text today where you see that they think uh, God adorns Eve with ornamentation, and in the context of marriage or uh, a permitted sexual relationship, ornamentation is not considered to be uh, silly or vain. It's considered to be a way of creating beauty. And so um, there are a lot of contradictory texts, and I, I love listening to them. Okay, so let's uh, get back to this uh, one, which I'm not going to learn with my wife when I get home. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Women are greedy, inquisitive, envious, and indolent. And Miriam spoke. We get the verse, right? And, Mir and Miriam spoke. And you already referenced it's about when she spoke about Moshe's wife, even though it doesn't tell us exactly what she said there in the text. Rabbi Yeshua of Sichnin said, when God was about to create Eve from Adam, he considered from where to create her. As it is said, and the rib which the Lord had taken from the man made he woman. How do they understand that God considered, like yeah, he was thinking about so it? So that is, uh, for that, you have to really, Dvarim Rabbah is a, a relatively late um, rabbinic text. It certainly is written after Bereshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah. And in Genesis Rabbah, um, chapter, I think it's chapter 8, but it might be, um, don't have it on me. Um, there is a long discussion about God considering the creation of man. And so in general, throughout the Rabbah Midrash, uh, there is an understanding that God thought long and hard before he created a creature which was going to be uh, extremely complex in the decisions that men and women make, uh, bringing good and evil into the world. And so they spend a lot of time uh, analyzing the creation of man. So it stands to follow that when we start looking at um, woman, there's also an understanding God considered that as well. It really is just a a continuation of a conversation they've been having for hundreds of years. Why did God create man to begin with? What was he thinking? And also this whole process of man first and then followed by woman yes. and, and the complexity of that as well. Mm -hmm. 
So God said, I sh now this is the Midrash talking, right? Mm -hmm. God said, I shall not create her from the eye, that her eye may not be haughty, nor from the ear, that she may not be an eavesdropper, nor from the mouth, that she may not be talkative, nor from the hand, that she may not be a thief, nor from the foot, that she may not be a gadabout. Isn't that someone that wanders around? Yeah, and who a gadabout is someone who wanders about gadding, which is like gossiping, someone who wander, you know, walks around gossiping. So he stopped, from where shall I create her? And I'll just stop and say, again, I love this imaginary dialogue that the Midrash has God um, speaking to himself, because it's if God is already anticipating all of the flaws that women could have by being a secondary create, create, creature from man, but she's being taken from man. So where is she going to get these characteristics? Right. It's almost implied if he comes from man's ear and it works out the way, then maybe Adam has all these same yeah, issues exactly. as well. Right. There is a self-critical piece to this that I'm going to improve. Either I'm going to improve on my creation, or um, these are the flaws I want to try to eradicate from. You know, if I, I put it in woman, who knows what that will do? It, it's interesting. Meaning, it's going to be all the things woman has because we were already told by Rabbi Levy. These are all characteristics women have, but God wants to try to avoid all these negativities, perhaps because man already has them, right? And so he's trying to, to undo or redo or improve, not really clear, uh, but he's, he's working hard to try to find the part of the body that will uh, make the perfect creature, perfect woman, a woman who will be pious, a woman who will not be critical, who will not complain, you know, and so on and so forth. And We'll have to wait and see what happens. So now, uh oh. So from his, so God concludes here. Do it from the, from man's genitals. Yeah, his most powerful. So his the most private translation land. "rib" is uh, according to this approach yeah. a euphemism. It's a euphemism. It's a euphemism because the Torah wanted to stay a uh, at least a G-rated document Sucky or PG, yes. and so therefore, uh, God, according to this story, God literally makes woman from uh, man's genitals. Yeah, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and then the Midrash goes on. And yet it was well, of no avail. Well, I'll just pause avail. for a moment yeah. to say that, um, if, you know, in general, the, the, that, that thought makes some sense for, for the time in which it's written, 6-700 CE, uh, because obviously they could see the seed. You know, they, they don't know about ovulation until 1600 CE, 1600 CE. And so the only thing they know is man produces what creates the form of future children. And so he goes to the reproductive organ, right? It's both the sexual organ and the reproductive organ, and that's where he's going to create woman from, which should ensure that woman is like man in the best possible way. Right? You've gone to something that is uniquely male and, uh, and, and belongs only to the male part of the species, and you've created from it, and that should really ensure the perfect creature. You know, it's funny, though. On the other hand, well, first of all, I had two thoughts. One is it's like, when I get to Freudian, it's like this fear of women emasculating yes. men, yes. that God is literally taking something from the male genitalia to make a woman out of it mm -hmm. is a pretty loaded image oh, uh, on the loaded. one hand. And it's like, in many cases, the genitals are the sort of the fundamental focus of the evil inclination. Yes. So in a way, you're taking a especially part of the men. body, especially for men, right. so you're taking a part of the body that, you know, if you're worried about all these characteristics, so then what characteristic are you promoting by using the yeah. genitals of a man? Yes, and that might be a, a good time to mention that um, this week in particular, we've had a lot of news about um, you know, sexual indiscretions and violence and harassment and so on and so forth. Couldn't God have anticipated some of that and um, auto-corrected, uh, perhaps? And why don't they reflect on that? But they do reflect on that in other places. Okay. So uh, well, I guess we'll keep going. Yeah. So, and then the text says, and yet it was of no avail. 
Everything that God intended should not be in here is to be found even in the best of women. So I have to interject and say I find this humorous, meaning there's irony here, that woman defeats God. And I don't know if they meant it that way, but I find it interesting that with the, God has a plan. And um, what can you do? Women are so unknown to us. There's a text in, in Shabbat, women are a separate people. Right? So other. Women, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We so, that woman even manages to deflect God's best intentions, and here we are. And so it's no surprise, surprise that we live side by side with another who's really quite unfamiliar to us. It, I, I think what this is really exposing is the, I would say, suspicion, but also the, the utter unknowingness men feel towards women. But even God can't figure even out women. God can't figure out women, which I find uh, kind of funny. Uh, I do also find it funny, like this almost this rabbinic frustration. It's like a, a joke. Right? What do you expect? Even God can't figure them out. Right, exactly. But at the same time, there is this very, such a sharp negative that, yeah. there's, that women are so problematic, even God can't fix them. Yes. Well, you could read it. Yes, yes, yes. You could. You Which could is hurtful, it. I think, to read that. I don't want my daughters reading that. Right, right. Um, that, you know, that would be hurtful. The reason I bring this text when I teach both 18-year-olds and in Pardes is because um, I don't believe in hiding um, a voice that appears and reappears throughout rabbinic text. Um, luckily, it's not the only voice, and I'll hopefully have time to talk about the other voices I hear. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that um, this is... You know, this is a struggle. What do we do with you know gender distinction and gender separation? And we have these texts that make women look as if they're less than men and they're deeply problematic. And yes, this is this. As I said, I introduced it by saying this is an offensive text, even though I find parts of it funny. Ultimately, it's not really funny. We're about to explore our imah, you know, the matriarchs, the the founding mothers of Judaism, and find something wrong with each of them. So let's walk through that. We don't yeah. have to read the whole thing in mind. What happens next? Because I, I really want to pick up on something that you just said. Mm-hmm. But walk us through what happens here. Because, uh, you know, in a way you're learning to it's something even worse, that the, the, the women who we want to look up to mm-hmm. and be the counterexample to, I would guess, the sort of common chauvinist negativity, mm-hmm. right, they get beaten up here too. I don't mean that literally, thank God, but at least figuratively. Do you want to walk us through what happens Yeah, so um, basically four, uh, five examples are taken. We have Eve, right, last week's Parsha, and when the woman saw, so here God is trying to keep her from being haughty, and Eve's eye brings her down. She's seduced by the the fruit of the tree. We've got Sarah heard when she overhears the angels promising Avraham a child through her, Sarah hears and laughs at the idea that she's going to have a child. And so here, she's an eavesdropper. We have the idea that Rachel stole her father's divining uh, tools, the teraphim. And, uh, and so we have a matriarch who's a thief. We have Leah. And here I must take a moment to explain a little bit about Leah because uh, the story about Leah is so important. Leah goes out. Um, she's not a gad about it all, of course, but they were looking for a woman who went out. I guess we should be thankful they didn't take Dina, who went out and came to an unfortunate end by being... You know, um, the rabbis compare them, right? They say yes, Dina like is a, like is like a woman like who runs out just like her mother was. But, but Yes, absolutely. But they didn't use her here, so for that I'm grateful. But what happens is Leah goes out because she buys an extra night with her husband. I mean, I imagine that, having to share your husband with three other women... Imagine being Yaakov and having to um, uh, spend time intimately with each wife, but okay. So um, there's a rotation, and uh, Rachel, who's infertile, wants to buy fertility plants from Leah. Uh, Leah's son has brought home some mandrakes, 
And um, Leah purchases an extra night with her husband, and she goes out to greet Yaakov from the field, saying, basically, you're coming home with me tonight. And um, I absolutely love it. And in lectures I've gone to on sexuality, meaning I, I often use that as a positive source about women initiating uh, intimacy with their husbands, and that Leah should actually be a positive role model because God opens her womb. And we know throughout Bereshit, certain wombs are closed and certain wombs are opened. And I can only say God validates that, that very um, bold move or very uh, assertive move, move I prefer, uh, in, in basically trying to claim over and over again the love of her husband by engaging in intimacy with him. And so, um, so I, you know, but here she's being used as the prototype for the gadabout. Okay? So I just then, want to pause for a second. So yeah. there's a potential use of Leah here, you're saying, as a positive example of a woman who asserts herself. Right. And instead she's being really painted almost like a harlot, I would say. And, and when I hear that story, my reaction is like my heart breaks for this woman who just the shame of knowing that her husband would rather go somewhere else. And it's only because she made a deal yeah. that he comes to her. And, and that feels so painful. It is a very uh, and so that piece of it. But here you're saying there's almost a deliberate move to take something that could be read as positive yeah. And paint her well in because they're looking for negative. someone who you know defeats God's desire that she not be a cat about. So again, the, let me. The last one is is Miriam. Miriam the pious. They even call her Miriam the pious in the midrash, and yet she too gossips. Right? She's talkative and she speaks about the Kushite woman. I had a student yesterday come over to me. I was speaking at the Kolech conference. Um, what an unbelievable rush of positive energy, seeing really hundreds of women from the last 20 years who have revolutionized, I think, Torah and Talmud study, and beyond that, work with prostitution and work with uh, changing laws in mikvah and really doing what I'd call tikkun olam. So it was quite a privilege to be with uh, such a distinguished group of women yesterday celebrating um, the accomplishments and nonetheless not resting, understanding we have to go forward. Anyway, a, a woman heard my talk, and I had quoted this midrash, and she came over to me and she said, well, you know Miriam spoke about the Kushite woman um, again, also a famous midrash, to help the woman. She felt that there had been estrangement. Here she was trying to protect a relationship or protect a marriage. It's, midr it's a midrashic interpretation. But, um, but, you know, how could the rabbi say that? So it's similar to what, you know, you're, you're suggesting about Leah. We could have used Miriam the pious and seen her virtue in trying to protect uh, a vulnerable Kushite woman coming into the Israelite nation, but instead uh, they use it here for negative. In other Midrashic texts, they, they celebrate Miriam. They do celebrate her protection of the Kushite woman. That's why I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, you know, I know you wanted to come back to sign, but I want to sum this up by saying voices like this are not, they're not singular, but at the same time, there are multiple other voices contradicting any one of these texts. I mean, every Midrash is only as good or as relevant as the context in which it's given and how you respond to it. I don't believe they ever meant for any of their midrashim to be the final word in any conversation. They were meant to be interpretations. And, um, and as with many interpretations, if you don't like an interpretation, you go on and you find another one. And they themselves are constantly disagreeing with the other's interpretation. And so when I read Midrash, I'm given permission to engage with the Midrash, but also to, uh, to rethink and reinterpret as well within the boundaries of the text. But what do you say, and I guess this really opens up the conversation to, to somebody who says that any body of material that still validates this perspective, it, like it invalidates the body of material. In other words, you know, yes, there are, Chazal have multiple perspectives, mm -hmm. but 
do we really want to include in our culture, uh, in our learning, this perspective, even if there are other ones? So in order to answer that question, I have to talk about the other two voices I bring, because I think the third voice in particular balances the first voice. I call the first section, and this is one of those sources, um, uh, Reflections on Woman, capital W. And really there, there's a lot of negativity, a lot of fear, a lot of suspicion. Um, a, a single woman in particular uh, can be a temptress, a seductress. Um, uh, can, uh, men can stumble over what woman represents, and so on and so forth. Section number two are really what, I, what are halachic texts. They're the texts in the Talmud that structure um, legal obligation of communities and legal obligation of individuals. And I point out two voices, one that's very protective of women. Uh, orphaned girls are the most protected, much more than orphaned boys, in terms of how the community is going to care for them. Um, and in addition, married women have a lot of legal agency. In fact, girls over the age of 12 and a half have a lot of legal agency, and that was very unprecedented. Uh, and so really, I, I acknowledge and admire the attempts they took to protect women despite the voices in one. Because the voices in one could have led to what happened in Greco-Roman culture with orphan girls in particular. If you didn't have anyone to take care of you, you were on the street and you either starved or you became a prostitute. And you see in Chazal a real understanding of how vulnerable uh, women can be and take legal steps to protect them within the system, which means women could go to the Beit Din and essentially um, argue for sustenance or argue for inheritance if there were no other... I mean, there were things they could do, or at least maintenance. Even if there were brothers who inherited, they could go to the court and say, look, we don't have any food, we need to be maintained. Okay, and so that's very important. At the same time, um, when it comes to legal obligations or mitzvot or, or obligations in ritual practice, uh, a clear distinction is made between the hierarchy of male and female. And the circumcised male certainly trumps uh, the female, although I, and has more obligations. Not a lot more. Something like seven or nine, depending on how you count. But nonetheless, the difference is the fact that men are obligated in saying shema, for instance, or tefillin and tzitzit, for instance, or sitting in the sukkah, while women were exempt from a small number of mitzvot led to a hierarchy, particularly outside of the home, that created the gender difference and gender identity. And I'll come back to that because I think gender identity is an important thing to talk about today. But um, So I also teach that. That's voices number two, protective and at the same time clearly gendered, meaning different obligations, different roles in society, and not prohibited. I always point out not prohibited, but exempted. And when it came to learning Torah, distanced. Okay. The third section is the one that I think is the most unprecedented and, and unique, and that's where woman as wife and mother essentially becomes equal to circumcised male, right? That the womb of the Jewish woman, which, you know, by the second temple, Judaism becomes matriarchal. I don't want to go into when it happened. I'm sorry, matrilineal. Matrilineal. And so ultimately what you did there is you the womb versus the circumcision, both are absolutely necessary. And for to survive, you need the women in some ways even more than you need the men. Because if the woman ends up having an affair or Loelena was raped by a non-Jewish man, the child is still Jewish. And so clearing space for the Jewish wife and mother in the home to be absolutely fundamentally necessary. And I'm not saying this in an apologetic way. I'm observing this. I'm noticing that the role of wife and mother becomes elevated almost you know, onto a pedestal and that men have to respect their wives and men have to bend down and listen to their wives. And, and a pious woman can convert a wicked man while a wicked woman can turn a pious man away. This understanding that despite the voices in section one that we just read, 
Um, men are going to need women, and men can function without women. And so clearing a space in which men and women actually are equally significant, and I would say women in some ways possibly even more fundamental to the survival of the Jewish people, I think was, I would like to give them credit, and, and this is based on reading I've done by a professor by the name of Shia Cohen and others, um, I would like to give them credit for recognizing that Otherwise, you were going to lose all the women, meaning if there was no incentive, if there was nothing fundamentally meaningful in women being Jewish and practicing and, and sending their husbands to learn and their sons to learn and raising their daughters to be good Jewish girls, um, you were going to lose the entire people. But even given the multi-voice, I still want to yeah. come back to my question. Yeah, why, why still make this the foundation of contemporary Jewish life and culture. Like when somebody comes to you, I'm imagining when a secular feminist comes to you and says, okay, fine, so the rabbis want to tell me are a mixed bag and sometimes they're okay, sometimes they're not okay, and we can even debate whether describing women as wife and mother and putting that on a pedestal is even uh, what, what, the, what modern culture wants. Right. What do you do when somebody says, as a feminist, why would you even so begin here? So someone asked me here? that yesterday, a young woman who had finished the army. I would say all of this was fine and good until about 50, uh, let's get even 100 years ago, when women got the vote and started to be educated. I mean, the fact that there were clear gender roles in Jewish society. Um, and, you know, the, more than one female scholar has noted that um, Jewish women had more protective space in Jewish society than in other societies. But again, I'm not coming to apologize, and people can do their own research and read history. But I will acknowledge that in the last 50 to 100 years, and, and particularly in the last 50 years, um, it's not enough, and the gender differences are becoming more, um, more of a stress point. Um, I would say, you know, one of the complications today is that gender gives us religious identity. And I, I say, you know, it, not just in Judaism, in Christianity, um, Catholicism, and Islam, um, a lot of the reason we do things is because we feel it's meaningful. And, you know, the fact that feminism has burst onto the scene, and, and this has to do with other minority cultures as well, but feminism has burst onto the scene. I want to talk about women. And, um, and essentially... Helped women understand that there's no reason for them to be paid less and educated less, and and has allowed them to to leave the home and 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 build careers and and essentially serve in potentially an equal uh, capacity as men. Although unfortunately, we still have a way to go in general society. Um, has put a stress and pressure on religion because we started educating women a hundred years ago thanks to Sarah Schneer, who understood we were losing the women who were not being educated, so we had to educate them in order to keep them in. But that, of course, led to women wanting more and more and more. I mean, it is a slippery slope. Um, I don't think of it as a slippery slope. I think of it as natural evolution. But yes, women start looking around and saying, well, why can't I learn? I learned Tanakh, and now I want to learn Talmud, and now I want to learn Halakha. And if I learn Talmud, then um, I want to get a degree in Talmud, and I want to teach Talmud, and I want to teach Talmud to girls, and I want to become a, uh, I want to answer Halakhic questions, so I want to be ordained. And the next step is obviously sitting on a beit din and answering, you know, serving in a beit din capacity. And so um, just like in general society, you know, women were nurses and then wanted to become doctors and surgeons and so on, and lawyers and became Supreme Court judges, I would say that tension is very much um, uh, pushing against um, orthodox 
community and Orthodox tradition today, um, it's probably the biggest flashpoint with LGBT right underneath it. In other words, women, you know, when, we, when it comes to technology, halakha is absolutely on the cutting edge. When it comes to medical technology, business ethics, you, you name it. We started charging interest even though the Torah said you can't charge interest because we had a function in a modern economic society, modern meaning a thousand years ago, an economic society. But um, when it comes to social structures, the entire foundation of the, of the traditional religion base rests on these social structures, and I think the big fear is, and I'm not... I'm not condoning it. But the fear is if we shake up the social structures, the entire structure may collapse. Now, I don't think we have to worry that much, and I think um, that the structure will survive, and it is surviving women being ordained. They are being ordained in orthodoxy. But I think orthodoxy looks at the other denominations, at the reform movement and the conservative movement, and, um, and worries that sometimes moving too fast or sometimes losing connection to tradition causes, uh, a, to some degree, some anarchy. And, um, and, you know, I don't think we want to lose the men to gain the women either. And in other, some of the other denominations, more women are in rabbinic school, more women are showing up to synagogue. Do we really want that to be? I, mean, I think we need to go about it in a, in a thoughtful manner. And it's happening. I, I do want to make that clear. But I, I think I'm asking a more theological question. Okay. Why stay rooted in this? If in it, these if, texts? In these texts, in these traditions, if they reflect values that you don't want to sign on to, and you don't want to trans, uh, encourage their transmission, right? why stay rooted in all this? I understand why people are orthodox. I understand why people are feminists. I don't think I fully understand, or I would like to understand better, the appeal of orthodox feminism. That's very different than asking me why stay rooted in these texts. Well, I feel like it's the same thing in a way. It's saying that am I, I'm not going to let my feminism undermine my orthodoxy. Right. I'm not going to let my orthodoxy, but I'm asking why not? Why not let one under... I get asked that a lot, why, why I don't leave orthodoxy. First of all, I think it's very hard to um, articulate why any person believes in what they believe, but I will say I grew up in orthodoxy. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, meaning I'm continuing traditions the texts that I learn are traditional texts that have been studied for 2,000 years. I feel like it's a tremendous privilege for me to be, um, to be living at a time where I don't even have to fight that hard to be learning these texts. And so now I'm adding my voice to the conversation, and that feels um, not just an honor. It feels like an important moment in Jewish history. Um, I do answer questions when it comes to, you know, mikvah and nita. I do um, write articles that have halachic significance. And so I feel that, you know, that's, that's a little bit my taking a place at the table in a way that has been organic and, and evolving. And so I don't want to give up my orthodoxy because I'm a feminist, and I don't want to give up my feminism because I'm orthodox. And I do want to go back to texts like the text we started with because I understand they are somewhere in the background, and I don't want to pretend they don't exist. But at the same time, I also may want to reinterpret or reengage or push those aside and say, okay, section number one speaks like this, but the women I encounter and the Haredi women I encounter and the Hasidic women, they're not rooted in Devarim Rabbah, meaning I don't... I, I don't think they would spend all that much time thinking about Devarim Rabbah. I'm interested in it for academic reasons, for because I'm a rabbinic text you know, junkie. I like to know what rabbinic text has to say and try to under, you know, get under it. But they would bring me other interpretations that are much more empowering and spiritual. I might, uh, now I'm going to be maybe a little condescending and say some of those might be too fluffy for me. I'd rather be with the hard edge, you know, uh, offensive text because I want to know what was really said and then find other meanings for them. But, um, but I think... You know, part of what changes anyone's interpretation or connection 
is um, what you're getting out of it also. And I, I get a lot out of being an Orthodox feminist. In a personal way, you're saying? In a personal way, yes. For example? It gives my life tremendous, even, even with the angst and the struggle. I'll say two things. I, I'm sorry if uh, I'm not going in order. I'm much less angry than I was 25 years ago before I started studying halakha and Talmud. And that sounds funny because I encounter uh, offensive texts all the time and you would think that should make me angrier. It doesn't because I, I've begun to understand the process, meaning I've understood 2,000 years. I'm amazed at the sustainability and the survivability of the Jewish people and particularly of um, Orthodox tradition or traditional rituals that date back 2,000 years. It amazes me. It inspires me. And so the more learning I do, um, the, the more I am really amazed at the power of this structure to sustain itself and to have a certain amount of authenticity and integrity. I'll also say there's one area that makes me very angry, divorce, and that I feel is inexcusable, and I have to get that out there. I feel it's a perversion of everything I believe in and all the values. This is the, the idea that only men can initiate divorce in Jewish law, and that fact uh, leaves thousands of women, I believe, if yes, I don't get, unfortunately, yes. uh, what's called agunot. They're stuck. They're chained because their husbands won't agree, and the, the method, the possibility of coercion, especially outside the land of Israel, but even here in Israel, are limited. And so these women are stuck. Right, and so I feel that goes against everything I've read in the Talmud and the Rishonim, and so all the study I'm doing protests the, where we ended up today, but that, okay, is another, perhaps another podcast. Um, but I'm, I, I am really, you know, every day I wake up and I feel this, this is the meaning it gives my life, and, um, and you know, I think that that's the most we can do is really find a way to, you know, take body and soul that we were created with uh, and create some sort of synergy and duality that brings us closer to God. And so this is the way I do it. So would you say you're happier with the rabbis of old than the rabbis of today? Oh, I say that all the time, that I feel that they would have found, yes, that they would have been more progressive. Even Robbie Levy, who's out there Robbie saying he, he was more really in the way, more open to learning new things, perhaps, or less I defensive. So. I do think so, yes, absolutely. I don't think they were apologetic, and I don't think they were defensive. And I think if women had sat at the table with them, they would have opened up the conversation. I do believe that even with what they were saying in this text, I think they would have, you know, would have listened. I do think that. And I think they would have come up with more solutions. So one more tough question. Who's it harder to have the conversation with? Uh, feminists who don't care much about Orthodoxy or Judaism or, uh, I don't, you know, old Orthodox Jews who were very anti-feminist. <laughs> who do you find it harder to connect with? Wow. Um, I would say the secular, I, I probably would speak more to a secular feminist because I bring a lot of academic, you know, kind of credentials with me and I, I historicize and I, you know, like my, my learning of text, I think, has a critical approach to it. I often find when I teach secular audiences, I literally, I see I walk in and they see I'm, I'm orthodox and then as I start to speak, I see their whole body language changes and they realize I'm not coming to sell them anything or apologize and that I'm bringing a critical uh, interpretation to my, to my teaching. Um, something that I find in, uh, in more traditional circles, they don't really, they don't want the critical approach. Um, but I do think, at least I see in my community, that I've managed, you know, the few things I've accomplished. We have a Megillah reading and a women's reading on Simchat Torah, and I'm very, um, I think I, I, you know, occasionally acknowledge that I've done something, and I see women who come who are not at all in the critical feminist, you know, uh, or liberal camps, and not that feminists have to be liberal, but just any of those camps. And, um, and they would disagree with me hashkafically tremendously, but I think... They, Meaning they, in terms of your worldview. In terms of my worldview. They would disagree with my worldview, but they, they trust me to 
present a halakhically authentic uh, process or the way we conduct it is in keeping with halakha. And so to me that's very meaningful, that they're able to maybe not agree with me but still come and be part of something because they feel that I'm not going to compromise on the standards. Okay, last question. Are you optimistic about the future? <laughs> Yesterday I was um, when I was at the conference. I am optimistic, and then there are days I'm deeply pessimistic because I think, oh, am I living in a bubble? Um, do I only interact with other women like myself or men and women like myself who are like-minded? And so we tend to think, oh, the world is really changing, and then every so often you meet people and you're like, what am I thinking? <laughs> like It's not changing at all. Um, I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because I don't believe that uh, modernity and, and the future of modernity can, um, can avoid or uh, pretend that big change isn't happening in social structures. And it's happening, you know, where it's happening that it's accepted, you know, deaf people and people who are cognitively impaired, those are social structures that have been upended because 2,000 years ago those people were outside the camp and now we bring them into the camp. Men, I'm talking about male, males who are deaf and males who are cognitively impaired, get aliyot the Torah, something that was unthinkable even 100 years ago. Um, And so I feel like... That's where the change is happening less controversially, but it's happening with women also, controversy or not controversy, and, um, and it's happening with the binary and LGBT, and um, I'm not sure we're going to go back. Of course, the big fear is, are we going to end up in religious extremism and fanaticism, or are we going to splinter into a million different groups uh, because, because of this pressure? And that, that I'm concerned about. Ultimately, I'm optimistic, but I am concerned. Okay, I think that... Uh... That probably a lot of people, I think a lot of people are in that space, maybe more concerned and optimistic. I think the only thing I would add that I think for me is important to remind myself that you know, the, the agenda you're talking about, it's not just that it's good for women or it's morally or ethically correct, but I think I, I'm moved when I hear religious feminists say they deeply, this is what God wants. This is what God wants us to do. And uh, I don't like conceding the what God wants argument only to those on one side. I think it's important to always put it... Uh, you know, in the position that you're mentioning uh, so eloquently as well. So I want to thank you very much, Nechama. I learned a lot. Really interesting text. Never would have imagined this is what you would have chosen. So it was a really uh, very creative and inspired choice. And uh, we look forward to hearing lots more from you in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tzvi. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org.